Now, you have printed on the front of your worship guide our mission statement as a church. That mission statement is that we at First West exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you haven't memorized that, you will soon. Our mission statement, the reason for our existence as a church, specifically to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus, comes directly from Scripture. The end of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's already died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins. He's been gloriously raised from the dead in a glorified body. Before he ascends to heaven to the right hand of the Father, he gives these instructions to his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You know these verses. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And know that I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Those verses, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we know as the Great Commission. Have you ever noticed that in the Great Commission, Jesus not only tells us what we are commissioned to do, what we are commanded to do, that is to make disciples, but that he also tells us how we are to do it, baptizing and teaching them to obey? Baptism of newly committed disciples of Jesus, then, is the initial act of both declaring our commitment to Christ, but also our first act of obedience to him as we obey his command to be baptized. Now, unfortunately, as Baptists, we often look to the act of baptism as the end goal of our gospel-sharing efforts. We share the gospel. A person that we share the gospel with believes it and follows Jesus. They are baptized in the presence of the church and mission accomplished, right? Wrong. I'm so glad I heard so many no's this morning. (laughs) Baptism, friends, it isn't the end of following Jesus, but just barely the beginning. Following, following that, following baptism, is a lifetime of learning to obey Jesus, of learning to love him more deeply, of knowing him more through his word, more, more intimately, and teaching others then to do the same. Baptizing and teaching, Jesus says, are how we make disciples of our Lord and Savior. And both of these disciple-making actions, baptizing and teaching, must happen clearly and intentionally. Neither of them are are to have fuzzy edges or to be somewhat confused, and neither of them are going to happen accidentally. Now, our text today in Acts chapter 18 and 19 will illustrate to us that the best way to make disciples is as Jesus instructed, taking the gospel to the lost, baptizing new believers in Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them the word of God and to obey it. And we'll learn together from this text that to make strong, mature, true disciples of Jesus, that we must continue to practice baptism rightly in our church. And so far as we are able to, to guard the ordinance of baptism, we need to do that as a church. But also that we as a church need to commit ourselves to the spiritual growth and the training of new believers. And we're going to see these things illustrated wonderfully for us in Acts 18 and 19 as Paul begins his third missionary journey. Now, uh, our friends in the back are going to pull up a map for us. And you guys know how I like maps. And so uh, uh, last time at the end of chapter 18, we saw Paul had finished his second 
uh, missionary journey, returning to Jerusalem and then there to Antioch, which is here uh, on the, the far eastern side of this map here. Antioch is kind of Paul's home base. Now here on his third missionary journey, especially in the verses we're going to look at today, he'll start from Antioch, work his way back through the region of Cilicia, which contains his hometown of Tarsus, continue west through the region of Galatia, through those cities of Derby, Lystra, Iconium. This will be now the third time he's gone through these cities. And these will likely be the cities that in Antioch and Pisidia as well. These are the cities, uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidia, uh, in the region of Galatia that Paul likely wrote his letter of Galatians to, okay? And so he's going to work his way through Galatia, further west through Asia, and then ultimately to the coastal city of Ephesus. And we'll learn more specifically about the city of Ephesus next week as we look at uh, Paul's continued time there. But this is where the majority of the action is happening today here in Ephesus in this major port city uh, in the region of Asia. I hope you have found your way to Acts chapter 18, verse 23. Will you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Luke continues in 18, verse 23. After spending some time there in Antioch, Paul departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus he was an, elo- an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that is the region Greece, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, there were about 12 men in all. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God, we pray your blessing on us as we've read your word. You may be seated. So how do we then make Great Commission disciples? How do we make disciples the way that Jesus has instructed us in the Great Commission? We know that Christ has given his life, so he is the Son of God in flesh. He lived a sinless life that we never lived. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He was raised from the dead to bring us in right relationship with God, to give us eternal life so that we will trust in him and in the work that he's done for us on the cross, giving our lives to him as Lord, we will be saved. 
we will have forgiveness of our sins and a right relationship with God. That is the gospel. That is the good news of the Bible. But Jesus says in Matthew 28, make disciples, make other followers of me by teaching this gospel, baptizing and teaching them. Well, all through Acts, we've already seen these things, baptizing of new believers and teaching of them, happening uh, repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. And we see it yet here again, but maybe in a more uh, intense way, focusing on those two things of baptism and teaching. What does it take to make great commission disciples? Well, first of all, from verse 23, we know that making disciples requires repeated encouragement. As we saw, verse 23 finds Paul embarking from Antioch on now his third missionary journey to take the gospel around the world. He begins by visiting the churches in Galatia and Phrygia, those cities, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, places where he was uh, persecuted and, and oppressed and even kicked out of Lystra. He was even stoned in that city. It is worth noting, again, that, that these are the cities in which Paul had some of the most, difficult, the most difficult times in ministry. And yet, he's again going to these places, <clears throat> again going to these places to strengthen the churches in these cities. Friends, Paul is so committed to the disciples of Jesus in Galatia and Phrygia that he visits them now for the third time since his first journey through that area, through those regions, in Acts chapter 13. Friends, there's not a whole lot else to explain here, so I'll just try to apply this to our lives, okay? You want to make great commission disciples? Then be like Paul. Know that you will make strong disciples of Jesus by committing to ongoing, scheduled time with others. You will make strong disciples by committing to ongoing scheduled time with others. Do you know how you've had a really productive or a helpful hospital stay, hospital visit? Because you go home exhausted from all of the tests that were done and the check-ins from nurses every two hours and doctors twice a day or more. If you're in the hospital, friends, it's because most of the time there's a problem. There's some sort of issue that needs to get worked out. There's a weakness within your body in some way. And it is the job of the doctors and the nurses that are in the hospital and the techs who are serving you to make you strong, to get you well, to get you to a point where you can go home and care for yourself. And so they poke and prod and pester you relentlessly until you are strong enough to go home, until they have gotten to the core of the issue and they have brought you to a place where you can now return home safely. Sick people in hospitals don't get well by accident. And strong disciples are not made by accident. It takes the ongoing, committed time and energy of mature followers of Jesus to make strong disciples. Strong disciples, strong churches grow up in the region of Galatia in part because of Paul's continued, ongoing time with them, teaching them to obey Jesus. So let us stop then hoping that God will make strong disciples among us and through us at First West. Let us stop passively waiting to see what God does and instead embrace the work that God has called us to by committing to one another and to ongoing scheduled time with younger believers, with less mature believers, with brand new believers. You who have known Christ for a lifetime have invaluable experience and wisdom and love of Jesus to share with those of, you, uh, those of us who are younger. Use those gifts of life, a long life with Christ, a good, strong knowledge of his word. Use those gifts to bless younger believers that they might become strong disciples of Jesus. Great Commission disciples are made through repeated encouragement. But making disciples also requires gentle correction. Making disciples requires gentle correction. In verse 24, 
of chapter 18. While Paul is working his way toward Ephesus, as he had hoped to do in Acts chapter 18, verse 21, when he passed through the first time on his way back to Antioch, while Paul is making his way to Ephesus, a young man named Apollos arrives to that same city. Luke gives us several descriptions of who Apollos is, several qualifiers for him. He says, one, he is a Jew by birth. Two, he's an Alexandrian by nationality. That means he was from uh, the city of Alexandria, named after Alexander the Great, in the northern part of Egypt. Third, Luke tells us that he's an eloquent man. And fourth, that he is competent, that he is strong, that he is mighty in the scriptures. Now, Apollos, we are told in verse 25, has been instructed in the way of the Lord. As a Jew, Apollos would have been trained from childhood in how to understand the Old Testament scriptures. His mother and father would have taken him to synagogue uh, regularly. He would have sat under the teaching of rabbis, learning, memorizing the scriptures that they had that we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. But this verse also says to us something a little bit more specifically about Apollos' instruction, and that is he was instructed in the way of the Lord Jesus, who is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Thus, we are to understand that, Apollo, that, that, uh, that Apollos understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the promised Savior of Israel and the world uh, that, that God has sent. And as he has that full understanding of who Jesus is from the promises God made in the Old Testament, Paul, uh, Apollos is able to accurately teach the things concerning Jesus, Luke says. Luke goes further to tell us that Apollos is fervent in spirit. So he teaches things, he teaches the way of Jesus accurately, and he does so in fervent spirit. Now, the original language here actually reads literally fervent in the spirit. And some translators would like to translate, fer- translate that fervent in the Holy Spirit. So to say that Apollos' gift, gifting and preaching comes from the Spirit of God himself. Some believe that Apollos is not yet a Christian, and the fervency he has is of his own spirit. He's just an energetic, charismatic guy who loves the Lord and is on the right track and talking about the Messiah and that sort of thing. But, but I think Luke is more specific here, and I think that, that Apollos is actually a believer in Jesus who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who has gifted him to preach and to teach eloquently and compellingly. But we find that there is a lack in Apollos's knowledge. His knowledge of Christ is in some ways incomplete. While he knows a lot about Jesus and teaches rightly about Jesus, he's lacking important information, as Luke says, because he knows only the baptism of John. Now, we're going to go down a little rabbit trail for a second, back to the Gospels in the time of uh, Jesus and and, uh, John the Baptist, and then we'll come back to Apollos here in a second. The baptism of John is the baptism that John the Baptist practiced. Now, you and your own Bibles can go to Matthew chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1, and you can see John the Baptist spoken about there, and you can see his action in baptizing. Now, the baptism of John, as recorded in the Gospels, is a baptism of sort of two things. On the one hand, it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People publicly saying, I'm turning from my sin, I'm turning to the Lord, I want Him to make me holy and to sanctify me. And on the other hand, it's a baptism of expectation of the Messiah, anticipation of God's promised Savior. John's purpose, John the baptizer, his purpose, as as perhaps the last Old Testament-type prophet, if you will, was to point the people of Israel to the Messiah. His baptism was one of preparation and expectation 
for the coming Christ. And we see him do this in John chapter 1, when after he is baptizing in the Jordan, he sees Jesus walking by. And he says to those who are listening to him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's entire ministry, John the Baptist's entire ministry, is about pointing people to Jesus, preparing people for Jesus. His baptism is one of repentance of sins and hope in the Messiah. This is the baptism that Apollos knows. But Apollos only knows the baptism that John practiced. He seemingly lacked the knowledge of baptism in Jesus' name, as we know of from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. When Jesus says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Apollos is lacking that knowledge in his gospel teaching and preaching. Apollos is not mistaken about Jesus. Uh, Apollos is not confused about who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. And neither did he wrongly teach about who Jesus was. Now at this point, unfortunately, Luke doesn't tell us any more about uh, whatever deficiency, whatever inadequacy Apollos had in his teaching. But what seems to be the case is that Apollos is a believer in Jesus as Messiah, but who has not received the instruction, has not received the news that Christ commanded baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all who would follow him. That's the rabbit trail. Now we're back to Apollos and what's happening in Ephesians, or in Ephesus, excuse me. So in verse 26, you've got Apollos in Ephesus preaching boldly in the synagogue. And Priscilla and Aquila, who are those dear friends of Paul, who were cast out of Rome, met with Paul in Corinth, went with Paul to Ephesus and stayed there. They are there in the synagogue while Apollos is teaching. And hearing him teach so eloquently... That they also know that he's missing some things in his gospel presentation. He's missing baptism in the name of Jesus. And so after he's done preaching, this dear ministry couple, Priscilla and Aquila, take Apollos aside in private and they gently correct his incomplete gospel teaching. Though he teaches things concerning Jesus accurately, he needs this couple to, as Luke says, explain to him the way of God more accurately. Whatever deficiency Paul had, at this point, must have been minimal. Because Priscilla and Aquila don't seem to require him to be baptized again. It seems that his baptism uh, uh, of repentance of sin and hope in the Messiah uh, in the vein of John was sufficient for him, that he didn't have to be baptized a second time. This composite, uh, 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 the composite picture we have here of Apollos is that he's this Old Testament-era saint who has embraced willingly the new covenant realities of the messianic age, of the age of the church and the Messiah. Because Apollos was following along with the scriptures in the Old Testament and the ministry of John the Baptist in all of the right ways and all of the most seamless ways that a Jew ought to have, his correction regarding the gospel and the baptism of Jesus is clear, it's coherent, it makes sense with his understanding of Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament. What we have happening here at the close of sort of the Old Testament period, the Old Covenant period, and the beginning of the New Covenant period, where also in the Old Testament, all of you know, God's people are marked by uh, uh, allegiance to Israel, covenant circumcision, keeping of the law, those sorts of things. In the New Covenant, God's people are marked by their uh, commitment to Christ, their circumcision of the heart, if you will, as the Holy Spirit lives in them, to enable them to lovingly, obediently follow the, the law of God without... Um, without having to follow all the ritual cleansing practices. But in between, there's kind of this transition period where the Old Testament realities and New Testament realities, Old Covenant and New Covenant realities kind of overlap. 
Okay? John the Baptist sort of lived in those days. As he's, he's kind of closing out the Old Covenant era, pointing to the Messiah in the New Covenant era, Jesus comes along and he overlaps John the Baptist. In the same way, Apollos has been following all of these Old Covenant realities. He's, he's an Old Covenant believer. He's an Old Covenant saint who now is living in light of New Covenant realities. And so he lives in this really unique period in time where, where he goes from being an old covenant saint to a new covenant saint all at once. And it's kind of fun to watch. A little bit confusing, but it's kind of fun to watch. But he's, he's making all of the right conclusions based on what he's already known from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. He understands that God has promised a Messiah to come, and, and he's expecting that. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene and points to Jesus and says, uh, the, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Apollos is going, Yeah, I've read about this guy in Deuteronomy and in Isaiah and Zechariah and Malachi and Micah and Hosea. I know the guy that you're pointing to. In verses 27 and 28, Apollos, now having, uh, feeling like perhaps he's concluded his ministry in Ephesus, his understanding of the gospel has been completed, he then undertakes to go to Achaia, uh, where the city of Corinth is, where Priscilla and Aquila had previously come from. The church in Ephesus then sends him off as a beloved brother, competent in the scriptures, trustworthy with the gospel, to go to Corinth. And at Corinth, we read in verse 28, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Apollos is a gift of God to the church in Corinth. And we'll read about Apollos in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church there. A part of his help to those who believed was his powerful debate of the Jews who opposed the gospel by expertly showing from the scriptures that he knew and loved that the Christ, that the Messiah, God's promised Savior, was this Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and raised again for the justification of sinners. We said before that making... Mature disciples of Jesus requires gentle correction. And we see that in what Priscilla and Aquila do in the life of Apollos. Apollos knows a lot about Jesus, but he's missing one critical point. Not, not a point that keeps him from being saved, not a point that keeps him from being a believer, but a point that, that keeps him from teaching the gospel most accurately. And these loving saints, Priscilla and Aquila, take this brother aside and gently correct him. They gently add to his knowledge what he has been lacking so that he becomes an even more competent, more mature preacher of the gospel and disciple maker. Christian, you, like Priscilla and Aquila, you will make mature disciples by teaching and correcting others with gentleness. You will make disciples of Jesus by teaching and correcting others with gentleness. Apollos is a gifted teacher. But he lacked that information that kept the edge of the gospel somewhat fuzzy. And rather than embarrassing Apollos, rather than publicly calling him out in front of the synagogue because of his deficiency in teaching, Priscilla and Aquila quietly, lovingly take this brother into their home to teach him more accurately the full implications of the gospel and all of the instructions of Jesus. Christian, when you take time to teach new believers and less mature believers, you ought to expect that they will ask questions that may seem obvious to you. They may make assumptions of the Bible that aren't quite correct. So as you're making ongoing scheduled time to spend with less mature, younger, new believers to build them up in the faith, you should expect that they're going to say things, that they're going to do things, that they're going to assume things about the Bible that are just a little bit wacky. Okay, it happens to all of us. So as you make disciples then, as you mature brothers and sisters, spend time with less mature believers, I beg of you, be gentle, be kind, be patient. 
correct them with all the tenderness that Jesus showed to those children who longed to sit on his lap. Because that's what all of us are as his disciples. We are children who can't wait to sit on our Savior's lap, to hear from him, to grow in him, to love him more. So then may we who have followed Jesus the longest be known for how much we love to bring others to sit at Jesus' feet, to hear from his word, to mold our hearts by it. Teach and correct others with gentleness as you make disciples, brothers and sisters. Thirdly, from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, we find that making disciples requires true baptism. It requires true baptism. In verse 1, Apollos travels to Corinth. He leaves Ephesus, and while he's there, Paul arrives at this great city of Ephesus and finds there, as Luke says, some disciples. Now, at first glance, you may be tempted to assume that these disciples are Christians because Luke uses the word disciple, as he has almost exclusively through the rest of Acts to refer to Christians. However, the word uh, disciple, the Greek word mathetes, can also be translated more generically as learner or as student, and is not necessarily a distinctly Christian term. So it's okay for Luke to use this in a non-Christian sense. Paul meets up with this group. I'll call them the Ephesian 12. He meets up with them, and perhaps himself having some questions about their discipleship, about what it is that they're really students, what it is that they're really learners of, he asks them a question that will reveal a lot of information to us. In verse 2 of chapter 19, he asks these disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a good question to ask any person that you you may think is a believer or is exhibiting some fruit that they are a believer, but you're not sure if they are or not. Ask them a vetting question like that. Now, their response to the question that Paul asks is that they've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. That confession alone says a lot about the state of their discipleship. That these so-called disciples don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit, that Jesus himself promised, that he said we ought to be baptized in the name of, the Holy Spirit that fell on the disciples in Acts chapter 2 and indwelt the heart of every true disciple from then on, cannot be ignored by the true Christian. You must know about him. A true follower of Jesus would know not only of Christ's death and resurrection, but also of salvation in his name. And they would know of the promise of the Holy Spirit that has been fulfilled in Acts and we've seen being fulfilled as we've worked through this book. Uh, Paul's next question narrows down, their, narrows down their belief even further. So first he asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when, you're, when you believe? They're like, we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. And then he says, well, then what in the world were you baptized into? And their response is, into John's baptism. And here there's a, a, a link, it seems, between these, the Ephesian 12 and Apollos. Two groups of people, a group of believers here and an individual brother here who know of John's baptism, but now we'll find know of John's baptism in two completely different ways. From this response, we know precisely what sort of disciples these are. These are disciples of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. I don't like to call him John the Baptist because then we try to claim him as our own as Baptists, and uh, that's not really fair. So I like to call him John the Baptizer. As the Baptizer's movement, so John's uh, influence didn't remain just in Jerusalem, just in Galilee, just in that Transjordan area. His influence actually spread throughout the Roman Empire. We know it went all the way to Egypt, to Alexandria, where Apollos was. And we know also that his influence has gone to Ephesus. Now, while John the Baptist's influence and message that Jesus was the Messiah made its way intact to Alexandria, it gets to Ephesus somewhat broken. There's a bigger gap. In, in, uh, in the knowledge that these Ephesian 12 have as opposed to Apollos. 
In verse 5, Paul then takes to explain what John's baptism was really about. He says in verse 5, or excuse me, uh, in verse 4, he says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So Paul explains the meaning of John's baptism, that it was all about, bapti- uh, that it was all about repentance of sin and looking forward to the, to the Messiah, placing their hope in the Christ who was to come. These the disciples in Ephesus, the Ephesians 12, they didn't know this. They just, uh, at best we can assume that they thought John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but apparently had no understanding of the expectation of Messiah. Or if they did, they had not known, they had not yet heard that Jesus was the Messiah or that that was John's message. And so Paul explains that to them. He says, Jesus is the one that you are looking for. He's the one that you are waiting for. He's the answer to the Old Testament. He's the one that John the Baptist pointed to. And as he finishes this more accurate explanation of John's baptism, the men hear the gospel in full, that Jesus gives forgiveness of sins through his death and resurrection, and that salvation comes by faith in him, and in his name alone we are made right with God. And upon hearing the gospel, the Ephesian 12, who have been sort of primed to hear the gospel by John's message, they believe. They believe in Jesus. Praise God. And now there's 12 new believers in Ephesus. What does Paul do with these brand new believers in Ephesus? He baptizes them. They had been baptized in the baptism of John, like Apollos. But they, had a lack, they, they lacked a right understanding of John's ministry. They didn't have a complete understanding of what John's baptism meant. And so their baptism, under the baptism of John, if you will, is incomplete. It's incorrect. It's done out of ignorance. It's not true. Here's an important truth for us to grasp this morning. You have this in your worship guides, and and I hope you'll think about it this week. That baptism is only baptism when it is done in obedience to Jesus by those who have actually repented of their sins who have actually placed all their faith in Jesus as the Lord who died for their sins and was raised again, and of those who can actually give clear evidence that their, confe- uh, uh, that their confession that Jesus is Lord is sincere. Baptismal candidates, that is those who are going to be baptized, must have a clear understanding of the faith that baptism illustrates they already have. Someone who is baptized in ignorance of, of what they understand about who Jesus is and what he has done is not truly baptized. There must be a clear understanding that God's salvation comes only by his grace, only through our faith, in Jesus Christ only. And if there's hope or expectation of salvation in any other way or by any other means, baptism in light of that doesn't do anything. It doesn't declare anything that is actually true. This morning, we're going to baptize a new brother into our family, Keller Cedillo. Keller, here's an important truth for you to grasp. Baptism is only baptism when it's done in obedience to Jesus by those who have actually repented of their sins, placed their faith in him as the Lord who died for their sins and was raised again, and give clear evidence that their confession that Jesus is Lord is sincere. Brother, I trust that your confession that Jesus is Lord is sincere, and we celebrate with you today this true baptism as a disciple of Jesus. Now, following baptism by water in the name of Jesus, Paul lays hands on these men, and they receive the Holy Spirit just as the disciples in Jerusalem did at Pentecost, accompanied in this case with prophecy and speaking in tongues. Now, this is the third time 
that the Holy Spirit has come upon believers with the, the resulting effect of speaking in tongues. So first time in Acts chapter 2, as those disciples, the 120 in the upper room, begin uh, sharing the gospel in languages that they did not know, in languages and dialects of the Roman world. We see it again in uh, Acts chapter 10, as the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles who are believing in Cornelius' house, and now here on the Ephesian 12. All of this... In Acts chapter 19, the Holy, Spirit prophe- uh, the Holy Spirit falling on them, filling these disciples, their prophecy and speaking in tongues, is all to fulfill what Paul had already asked, the, is, is to fulfill, is to answer the, the, the questions that Paul had asked them to begin with. He said, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? We didn't even know there's a Holy Spirit. Well, now after baptism of their belief in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes on them in a tangible way. Now they definitely know there is a Holy Spirit. Secondly, he says, well, what into, into what were you baptized? And we're like, into John's baptism. Well, now they've been baptized uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has come upon them. The Holy Spirit himself has indwelt them. He has baptized them, fulfilling what John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. When he says to the crowds, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am, unworthy, I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What we're seeing in Acts chapter 19 is Jesus making good on the promises of the Gospels, that he will fill his believers with the Holy Spirit. As I said before, this is the third time that speaking in tongues has been attended by the falling of the Holy Spirit onto new believers. However, the events of the Holy Spirit's falling and this sort of ecstatic gifting, if you would, in Acts are unique. Okay? There are far more instances of the Holy Spirit indwelling believers in Acts that do not result in prophecy and speaking in tongues than do. Okay? You do your own survey of that this week. Each event, uh, each of the, even the three events where the Holy Spirit falls and they're speaking in tongues as a result, each event differs in the order and the manifestation of the Spirit's falling. So in uh, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls upon the disciples in the upper room with, with, just as they are praying. They haven't been baptized in Jesus' name. Most of them have probably understood John's baptism rightly like Apollos did. And now the Holy Spirit comes on them. They begin speaking in tongues. Well, then you go to Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house where Peter preaches the gospel. And while Peter is preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on the people. So it seems that that they come even silently, uh, quietly to an understanding of faith in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit falls on them before Peter can even finish his sermon. And after that, then they're baptized. And then we have here in Acts chapter 19 where you have these disciples in Ephesus who come to faith in Christ, who are baptized, and then are filled with the Holy Spirit. All of that is to say, The Holy Spirit works in different ways, in different times, in unique uh, situations in the book of Acts. And we shouldn't derive from those things any particular order or any particular expectation of what we ought to see when someone is baptized, okay? No particular pattern should be sought in in these events for modern Christians other than than we should pull this from it. The promise that Christ said he would uh, send his Holy Spirit to all who believe, and that he does. That he does. So Christian, if you are truly trusting Jesus, trusting him as Savior and Lord, trusting God's grace uh, alone through Jesus to forgive you, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit indwells you today, okay? Here's the point of all this. There's a lot of baptism talk going on in Acts chapter 19. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Church, we will... As members of First West, we will make true disciples best by being clear about baptism. 
We will make true disciples best by being clear about baptism. So let me now be very clear about baptism. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we're to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of the triune God. The call of Peter in Acts chapter 2, after his sermon at Pentecost to all who believe the gospel, that Jesus died for sins, was raised from the dead, that the Son of God offers forgiveness of sins to all who repent and believe in him. The right response to belief in that gospel is to be baptized to publicly show that profession of faith. Baptism does not save us, friends. Salvation is God's free gift to us, received by submitting in faith to Jesus as Lord. Baptism is, though, a declaration. Baptism is a declaration. Now, it's not a declaration that we want to try harder not to be a sinner. It's not a declaration that I'm going to give it my best effort from this day forward. Baptism is not a statement of hope that our lives will get better after this moment. Baptism is not an announcement even of our desire to get closer to God. You know, I just I feel kind of far from him. I want to get closer to Jesus. I'll go get wet on a Sunday morning and see what happens. Baptism is a declaration. It is, so it is not these things, but it is an announcement of our trust in Jesus. Keller, as you are baptized here in just a moment, it, it, this will be an announcement of your trust in Jesus. Baptism is a statement of our allegiance to Christ who died for us and the church that he has built by his own word. Brothers and sisters, you who have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus as a professing believer in Christ, follower of Christ, you have made the statement of your allegiance to your Savior and also to the church that he has saved by his blood. Baptism is a declaration. It's a declaration of war. A declaration of war against sin and death and Satan. It's a declaration of war that has already been won by Christ and yet is still a war that we will fight in our own hearts until we die or Christ returns again in the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a lot of things, but it is certainly our declaration that, as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus some years later to the city where he's ministering, uh, that we are all, as Christians, committed to the common confession that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We will make disciples, true disciples, best by being clear about baptism, church. And as a Baptist church that practices believers' baptism, we can't afford not to be clear on that. Fourth and finally, Verses 8 and 10 of chapter 19. We see that making disciples requires continued teaching. So it requires ongoing scheduled time with others. It requires gentle correction. It requires an understanding of what is truly baptism. And fourthly, making disciples requires continued teaching. In verse 8, Paul continues to do the very thing that he does everywhere that he goes in every city he happens to be in. He preaches in the synagogue. He goes to that meeting place of the Jews to take the gospel of the Jewish Messiah to the Jews that they might then be a blessing to the world uh, through sharing the gospel with Gentiles as well. Very likely, Paul's visiting the same synagogue in Ephesus where he preached on his first pass through that city in uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 19. And as he does what he does in the synagogue, the same thing happens that happens in every other synagogue he's ever preached in. Some of the Jews there stubbornly refuse to hear the gospel. And even more than stubbornly refusing to hear it, they begin to speak evil about the way, which is a sort of an early nickname, an early description for Christianity. And as they do that, as these Jews stubbornly plug their ears to the gospel, begin to speak evil, begin to slander the disciples, 
Paul then turns to the Gentiles, as was his practice in every other city where he had been refused. From there, he takes the Ephesians 12, these newly catechized believers, to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And we know virtually nothing else about the Hall of Tyrannus other than what's mentioned here in Scripture. The identity of Tyrannus, the person, the location of this hall, of the school, are not known to us today. Uh, and none of those things are not so nearly important as the time that Paul spent there. Luke tells us that in the hall of Tyrannus, Paul reasoned daily for not one, but two years. Two years every day in this public venue, public forum, reasoning with those who had come in to listen to him uh, that Jesus was the Christ. What should intrigue us here in these verses is that Paul took the Ephesian 12 with him to the hall for two years. Paul's not by himself for two years in Ephesus. Paul's with 12 other dudes for two years in Ephesus. For two years, Paul modeled and taught gospel ministry to these new disciples of Jesus. For two years, he labored day after day alongside these men in the gospel. For two years, day after day, he helped these 12 men to follow Jesus more obediently and to make disciples who would do the same. We find that through Paul's two years in the hall of Tyrannus and in Ephesus, that his teaching time there and his, his discipling time with those 12 men is so influential that the word of the gospel doesn't just permeate Ephesus, it permeates the entire region of Asia. So that Luke says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Church of Jesus Christ at First Baptist West Albuquerque, know this. You will, I will, together We will make disciples best by teaching through life together. We will make disciples best by teaching through life together. Paul's ministry in Ephesus is impressive. Not so much for what he says there, but instead for how committed he is to the city and to the disciples of Jesus there. In all, Paul will spend nearly three years in Ephesus, and we'll see more of his uh, uh, encounters with the Ephesians next week. Three years of following Jesus daily with others who are new in the faith. Three years of teaching about the gospel, reasoning and studying with others from the scripture, and of modeling a spirit-filled, gospel-driven life on mission. Three years. Those of you who are looking for a quick path to making disciples of Jesus, those of you who are looking for six steps to make a disciple of Jesus, those of you who are hoping for a a six-week or a six-month path of making other disciples of Jesus, I point you to Paul's time in Ephesians. Three years. Making disciples is hard work. Our sinful hearts constantly, constantly tempt us to follow other things other than Jesus. It takes time for the Holy Spirit to work in us the holiness, the sanctification that we need and that we ought to have to obey Christ out of love for Christ. Three years. I'll say it again. Discipleship doesn't happen by accident. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes toil and struggle, and patience in helping others follow Jesus. Our mission statement as a church is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, however long it takes. You don't need to be an expert in the Bible to disciple somebody else. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need a PhD. 
You don't have to have been through all of John MacArthur's or Beth Moore's or Kay Arthur's studies. You don't have to be an expert like those to disciple someone else. You just need to be an obedient follower of Jesus who loves him deeply, who is applying his word daily to your life, and who will commit to help others to do the same day after day, month after month, year after year, as they grow in strength and maturity and commitment to do the same with others. Church, this is how the gospel reached all the residents of Asia. It's how the gospel will be heard by every ear in Albuquerque if, if and only if we will so commit to do. The gospel will permeate this city. The gospel will permeate this state. This, the gospel will permeate our nation and the world if we will commit to do what Paul committed to do in making true disciples of Jesus through baptizing them rightly with a full understanding of who Jesus is and spending a lot of time with them, teaching them to obey Jesus. The results are profound. You may say, I don't want to spend three years making disciples. I've got more important things to do. Or I, just, oh, I, I feel like Jesus, is, his, his mission is more important than that. It's more urgent than that. I can't take three whole years to do it. Jesus took three whole years with his disciples. And look what a hot mess they were. <laughs> Paul spends three years in Ephesus to make disciples. And as a result, God blesses his faithfulness. He blesses the discipleship, the growth in Jesus of those, uh, of those disciples in Ephesus so that the word of the gospel permeates the entire region of Asia. This is so awesome. Church, see the good things that happen when we sacrifice our desires, our time, our agenda for the good of others and helping them follow Jesus. The gospel permeates entire regions, entire nations, entire countries, the, the world, if we'll only do this one thing. I hope that you'll commit with me like, like Paul and with Paul to spending time with believers, teaching them the truth of the gospel, pointing them to who Jesus really is, helping them to be obedient to Jesus through baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then spending a lot of time after that, after that pouring into their life, opening the word together, praying with them, sharing your struggles, helping them to follow Jesus. Because when we do that, when we do that, the gospel will fill this city. The gospel will fill this state. The gospel will fill this country and the world. And God will get all of the glory for it. And we'll love him all the more as a result. Now this morning, our time of response will be somewhat twofold. We'll sing a song of response this morning. All together, the song, I Surrender All. And today, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not following Jesus in the way that, that we see Paul doing, the way these disciples do, if you don't know Jesus in truth, you've not trusted him as Savior of your life, you've not submitted to him as Lord, as the King of your heart and life, as we sing this song this morning, I surrender all, we invite you, I invite you to surrender all of your life to Jesus today. That's part of our response this morning. And dear Christian, you who are more mature, you already know Christ, you don't need to respond to Christ in faith today, you've already done that. But you may need to respond to Christ by committing your life to spending time with those that God would lead you to, to make them stronger, more mature, true disciples of Jesus. Would you surrender all of your life today to Jesus and all of your days ahead to giving to others to help them to follow him more faithfully? That's our first aspect of response. Our second aspect of response is we're going to baptize our new dear brother, Keller, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and thank God for the work that he's done in his heart. And so you stay and rejoice in this time as we respond by reminding ourselves of our own faith, of our own baptism, of the one Lord and God who is Father of all and in all and through all, as Paul says. Let me pray for us, and as we do, you ask the Lord to work in your heart this morning as to how you need to respond most faithfully 
to him today. As I pray, I'm going to ask our ushers also if they'll make their way to the front of the worship center to receive our tithes and offerings as we do that.